Over the years, I have had a number of little hobbies. One of them in particular has been refinishing furniture. Now, in full disclosure, part of the reason that I developed this hobby was out of necessity. When my wife and I were first married and after we graduated from college, I was in seminary, and to be blunt, if we were gonna have furniture, we were gonna have to find it cheap and restore it to make it look nice. We just didn't have any money to buy new furniture. In fact, anything new that we had was given to us by our parents or friends or people who just felt compassion on us. We had that poor look, I guess, I don't know. (laughs) But there were a few things more thrilling. Once I got the bug, traveling on the road, seeing a piece of furniture, whoa, it says free, yard sale, really cheap, or hanging outside of a dumpster was a piece of furniture, and so we would take it and grab it. In fact, to this day, there's a piece of furniture in our living room that we pulled out of a dumpster 27 years ago, refinished it, and it looks really nice. I like the piece of furniture, not so much because of its appearance, but because I rescued it out of a dumpster. Refinishing furniture has been something that I've enjoyed, but I've also had to learn the hard way that not every piece of furniture is made of the same quality. Sometimes you'll be traveling down the road and you'll see something that looks nice, you get out of the car, walk up to it and realize, hmm, actually, that's not a nice piece of furniture. It just looked like a nice piece of furniture. And I I began to understand the concept of veneer wood. And for those of you who are woodworkers or you know what a veneer is, it's a thin layer of quality wood put on top of cheap, inexpensive wood. In fact, there's some pieces of furniture that the veneer actually isn't even a veneer. It's actually a photograph of wood put on top of glued sawdust together to make it all look like a piece of furniture. That's the kind of piece of furniture that just needs to stay in the dumpster. To refinish a piece of furniture, you need to know what the kind of, uh, kind of wood that you're dealing with. And I learned that veneer often is hard to tell from a distance. But when you get close, you can actually see it. Sometimes furniture that looks good actually isn't good. Today I wanna talk to you not about veneer furniture, but about veneer religion. The kind of religion that has the appearance of quality, it looks like it's pretty solid, until you begin to get close. It's the kind of religion that looks good from the road, but when you get inside the home, mm, not so much. Or when you get inside the heart, you begin to learn something's not right. Perhaps you know of this malady, this veneer religion. Maybe you've known it individually. It can also be true of an entire family. Maybe you grew up in a home where everyone thought you were really a religious family, but inside it was a spiritual train wreck. And some of you are in the process of kind of recovering from that dissonant experience. Or it can also affect a small group where that group of people sort of pretend that they're all godly or tragically even church leadership or a church as a whole or for that matter, even a movement of churches, even a denomination. So veneer religion is a thing, it's a bad thing, and it's something that has often plagued God's people, and it is that sort of thing that James has in his sights today. Our text 
Verse 27 continues the theme that we've seen over the last two weeks of this connection between faith and works. We've seen it generally and then specifically applied last week to the idea of how our faith connects to how we talk. Well, today in verse 27, James is going to take that paradigm to another level and he's going to help us see the connection between what we believe and how we care. In fact, you can summarize the entire message this way, that real religion cares and is careful. Real religion cares and is careful. So I've loved our journey through this book, and I hope that James has been helpful to you. We've been moving rather slowly. We're going to pause as we move into Advent. We're going to be studying expositionally a number of passages in the book of Isaiah. We'll pick up chapter 2, beginning in the first of the year. Today, I want to draw this series for this year to a close by helping you understand this idea of how real religion cares and is careful. We're going to look at first the goal What is James pushing towards? The call, what is he inviting us to embrace? And then the warning, what caution does he give us here? So first, the goal. James identifies that the target for true religion looks like something that is pure and undefiled. Last week he said that we're gonna have a religious perspective, if you think you're religious, then you better bridle your tongue. That was a kind of a negative statement. Don't do this. But in this text, it's more of an affirmative case. He tells us what real religion should look like. He says it should be pure and undefiled. He says pure and undefiled religion. What does he mean again by religion? Last week we talked just a little bit about the fact that our culture presently doesn't like the word religion so much. We tend in our modern nomenclature to hear more often, I'm spiritual but not religious. And part of the reason people say that is they want to communicate kind of the genuineness of what they believe, not some sort of rigid um, guidance based upon rules. Understand that at one level, but the word religion in this context is positive. It needs to be affirmed. It's designed to communicate that what you worship and how you worship affects how you live that there's a a linkage between what you believe and what you do. And I think all of us could agree that that's the way that it should be. Even if you're listening today and not yet a Christian, surely you would agree that people who believe one thing ought to live in light of what they believe. We could all agree on that. He says that this religion is before God the Father. Interesting, last week he said, if a man thinks he's religion, Religious, And in this text, James isn't interested in what you think. He's interested in what God thinks. It's a big distinction. What James is driving at here is a concern about what true worship really looks like. He's identifying an important thing for us to consider, namely that we ought to ask ourselves, what does God think about our religion? That's an important question, because throughout the history of God's people, there has been a very tragic pattern, and the pattern is, is that religious people can slip into a pattern of faking it. They do all of the things that religious people do, but they're not really into it. They exalt the form over 
the reality. Sometimes it's intentional and brazen. Consider Acts chapter five, Ananias and Sapphira, who presented that they were really generous when in fact they weren't. They just wanted to look like they were generous. Or consider Isaiah 29, 13, where the prophet says, this people draw near me with their mouth, this is God speaking, and honor me with their lips while their heart is far from me. That's what James is concerned about. And he loves the book of Isaiah. There's many overlaps between the book of James and the book of Isaiah, which is why to understand the words pure and defiled, we also need to understand how they were understood in the Old Testament context. To be pure meant to be ritually clean. Undefiled is a way of saying the same thing, but that one could then come into worship. This idea of pure and undefiled was deeply connected to both the restrictions that were around worship and that which was designed to send a really strong message that when you come before a holy God, you better be holy. And that holiness was achieved by faith in these sacrifices, by ritual cleansings, all designed to communicate that At the end of the day, if you come before a holy God as a person without sacrifice, that's a dangerous proposition. For those of you not yet Christians, you need to know that in Jesus, God offered the ultimate sacrifice to cleanse us from the inside out by offering a once for all atonement for sin so that even in this moment, those who have put their trust in Christ, we come not as perfect people, but as a forgiven people, cleansed of our unrighteousness. And so that's why Christians sing because of the joy of what it means to have been cleansed of all of their sin. And yet, the book of Isaiah takes God's people to task because in their coming to worship, they were neglecting a host of other things that didn't fit with their solemn assembly. Take your Bible and go over to Isaiah chapter one. This is a very important text. I want you to see it in your copy of God's word and not just on the screen. We'll come back to a few verses in a few moments. But God says some pretty blunt things to the people of God in Isaiah chapter one. They're worshiping, they're sacrificing, and yet their hearts are far from him. Here's what he says in Isaiah 1 in verse 13. God says this, bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. In other words, God is saying to his people, stop it. Stop your singing. Stop your sacrificing. Stop coming before me. Why would God say this? Verse 14, your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good. Seek justice, a correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. So what makes God say, shut it down? Just shut down your whole enterprise of religion. Well, he says this, when there is a tragic disconnect between what people say and how they sing, and what they do on their Sunday worship, 
in comparison to what they do the rest of the week in terms of how they care for people. This is why you need to read regularly the Old Testament prophets, because so often the Old Testament prophets were deeply concerned not only with the possibility of people worshiping a foreign god, but also how their worship of the one true God could actually cloak hidden self-centeredness. So there's always ditches that you need to keep in mind. One ditch, for instance, would be a sort of false worship where we're, we're worshiping a God who's not the one true God. That's one ditch. On the other side is fake worship where we're using that worship of the one true God in order to prop ourselves up and make ourselves feel better about ourselves. False worship involves believing that biblical truths really don't matter. On the other side, fake worship involves living as if biblical truths don't matter. So one's a belief problem, the other is a living problem. So there's always two issues. What do you believe, what do you do? False worship rejects true religion, whereas fake worship uses true religion. One says, I believe the wrong things. The other says, I do this because of what I wanna believe about myself. Both are dangerous. And to be clear, both are forms of idolatry. And part of the real challenge of being a faithful follower of Jesus is recognizing these two ditches. There's always ditches on the other side and not missing one for the other. James's call here is for pure and undefiled religion. That's the goal. Now, what's the calling? In the same way that James pushes previously against the idea of disconnecting our words from what we believe, here we see his desire to affirmatively connect directly what we believe and how we care for hurting people. He's echoing the words of Jesus when Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, fill in the blank, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now James, back in 127, says that we are to take this religion before God and the Father, which is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. What does he mean by that? What, and why, why use widows and orphans? Well, in the Bible, you need to know that caring for orphans and caring for widows was a vital expression of who God is and what he had done. This idea of being a people who have been redeemed oh, meant that you were therefore redemptive in how you treated other people. So those who were graced by God's graciousness were themselves to be gracious. So this kind of concern for other people is central to God's heart and it therefore should be central to the people of God's heart. So again, if you're not yet a Christian, the, the goal of the gospel is to so change people's hearts by the shed blood of Christ, forgiving them of their sins, that they not only have a right relationship with their God, they also have a right relationship with other people. So the gospel was meant to transform people from the inside out because this is what God himself is like. For example, in the Old Testament, 
Here's how it shows up in Deuteronomy. For the Lord your God is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. And then he says this, love the sojourner therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. So because of what God had done for them, they were therefore then to treat other people in a manner that fit with God's graciousness. Or another text, Deuteronomy chapter 24, you shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner or to the fatherless or take a widow's garment in pledge, but you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there, therefore I command you to do this. So whatever kindness or graciousness that God's people are to be involved in, it is because of the way in which God has been gracious to them. You might say, well, that's the Old Testament. True. But in the New Testament, we see it as well. In Acts chapter 6, when the early church is formed and they had a benevolence ministry taking care of widows, there was a conflict that emerged because there were non-Jewish speaking widows they were Jews from outer regions other than Jerusalem. For some reason, they had moved into the city, and they were being neglected for some reason in the daily distribution of food. And it was a big issue. The apostles said, we have to address this. And we find that the early church, in order to care for the needs of people within their body, they sold their goods to be sure that those in the church who had need were taken care of. And even the apostle Paul, when a famine hit and Jerusalem saints were um, just pummeled by a famine and degradation connected with the loss of crops and starvation, Paul took an offering with Gentile churches in the church planting realms of Asia and Asia Minor in order to bring a gift to help support the believers that were in the city of Jerusalem. So it's important to recognize that this concern for others is in the Old Testament and the New, and it's directly related to your understanding of God's grace and the gospel. So to visit, when he says to visit the widows and orphans, it means to deliver, to rescue, to help, to make something right. It's, it's what God does. Exodus 4 and verse 31, it's what God did is he delivered, his, he visited his people. It's, it's how we care for people who are in distress. Now what's interesting is he talks here about widows and orphans. So why does he do that? Does he mean only widows and orphans? Well, he at least means widows and orphans. We know that the early church cared for widows. The Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 5 records even specific instructions as to how they were to be cared for, but he doesn't just mean widows and orphans. He means at least them, but he means that they represent something even more because even in 1 Timothy chapter 5, it's not that all widows were cared for in the same way, Paul gave specific instructions as to what kind of widow was to be cared for. A wealthy widow who had lots of financial resources was not to be put on the church's um, benevolence roles. So just because she was a widow doesn't mean that she then therefore received help, but it meant that if she was in need, that's the key. So when we think of widows and orphans, you need to know it means that, but the intention is even more broad than just those two categories. Doug Moo, a New Testament scholar, says this, the orphan and widow become types of those who find themselves helpless in the world. 
So the key is need and helplessness. Widows and orphans become a type of that. Now, if we go back to Isaiah chapter one, here's how it sounded in that text, just to remind you. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Here it comes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. For though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. So what is James and what is Isaiah driving at? Here is what it is. That a right understanding of who God is, a right understanding of what God has done, will affect how God's people treat those who are helpless, who are unfairly treated, those who are marginalized, In other words, God has a heart for the vulnerable and those who know God's heart and love God's heart and experience God's heart will love those who are on God's heart. Now this happens at a couple levels. And just to be clear, I wanna make some specific applications of this. Some of you have already jumped the rails and you're like, oh man, is he going to social justice? Hold on. I want to be clear that this needs to be applied in three areas, two of which I am primarily concerned about. It needs to be applied personally and as a church and then in society. And it's the first two that I'm most concerned about and it is the priority of the church and my priority as a pastor. So personal, what does that mean? It means that you, I, we have to ask ourselves to what extent are our personal eyes reflecting the gospel-centered concern for those who are vulnerable? to those who are helpless within our orbit. You can't assume that, oh, the church is taking care of this or I gave at the office. No, you, we, I have a responsibility. There's somebody in my world who needs help. I have an obligation to try and do whatever I can. Secondly, especially in the context of the church, my goodness, if church people don't love church people in the midst of our needs, then what does that say about the gospel? We need to collectively ask ourselves about our gospel-centered concern for the vulnerable and the marginalized people who are part of our fellowship part of the body of Christ. And then third, we need to consider what the net effect is of all of us who are called Christians living in our city. What does it look like for us collectively, the sum total of our grace and kindness to be leveraged to care for those who are hurting and those who face situations that are just not right? So if we think about the priority of personal care and church care, that then spills over into what it means to care even for the folks within the context of our city. And now, I gotta be honest with you that as a person who's a theological conservative, pastoring theologically conservative churches, when I look at the sort of the landscape, the history of theological conservative churches, our tendency has been to rightly emphasize the first and the second, but often at the neglect of the third. Theologically conservative churches, while right in their theology, have often been weaker in their collective influence on their culture, being only concerned about what was happening on the inside. So, As a church, that's why we have a benevolence fund. It's why we have deacons who care for our widows. It's why a group of church members, I got this photo this week, warmed my heart. A couple uh, of our church members went over to someone's house and raked the leaves of one of our church members who needed some help. 
It's the reason that we're in the Brookside neighborhood. It's the reason we're doing a Christmas offering. It's the reason we're thinking about how we can help and minister to our physically disabled church members. It's the reason we think about our five mile radius. It's the reason we're concerned about what can we do about addictions. It's the reason that we've tried to pursue conversations about racial reconciliation and justice. None of this is to advance a secular social justice agenda. And it surely is not because we've abandoned the gospel. It is because at a personal, at a church, and a societal level, our gospel love should have grace effects in every place that we operate. Remember when I talked about a couple weeks ago the high possibility of me being a Pharisee because of my education, religious engagement, et cetera, et cetera? I think there is always, for a church, a real risk in preaching a false gospel. That's a real, real risk. But I think another, more common risk for churches like ours is to be content with preaching the gospel and not living out the gospel. Personally, as a church, or in the culture at large. And each of you, each, all of us, have to figure out, so how do I fight against that? You may not fight against that the way that I fight against it. For instance, my brother Dale moved to Brookside. I didn't feel led to do that. <laughs> Despite enormous pressure from Dale, <laughs> that's not what the Lord has led me to do, at least not yet. We have a team thinking about addictions. That may not be your space. You may make meals for sick people. Praise God, you don't want me making meals for sick people. It will make it worse. <laughs> Some of you could fund scholarships for at-risk kids. Some of you could tutor kids after school. Some of you are ready to engage in the conversation about the experience of our minority church members. Others of you are adopting orphans. The point is this, brother, sister, find out what your role is in making pure and undefiled religion care. Find out how God is asking you to be engaged because real religion cares, it cares. So third, there's a caution. Isn't there always a caution? There should be a caution. And again, this is one of those sermons, one of those texts that needs to be understood that there are ditches on either side of the equation because James says, not only visit widows and orphans in their distress or in their affliction, he says, keep oneself unstained from the world. Isn't that interesting? James wants us to be sure that we aren't polluted by the world and its system, either in the way we act or the way that we think. He wants to be sure that the way in which we conduct ourselves is fitting with the truth of the scriptures and isn't so overly adjusted to the way in which the world operates. Now, at a moral level, that means that pure religion results in a ethical, moral behavior that's different than the world. I mean, it shouldn't surprise you. Galatians chapter five, Paul says, these are the things that don't fit with being a follower of Jesus. So let's put these off. Let's not, not let these be named among us. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, rivalries, orgies. And then Paul says, and just in case you're like nailed all of those, he says, and things like these. <laughs> 
Church, can I just remind you that you could be the most avid attender, you could be a financial supporter of this ministry, but by your immoral behavior, you can discredit everything this church and this body of believers stands for. So be careful. Your morals matter. James says, pure religion connects both what we um, sing about and also what we do. We can also adopt not only the world's behaviors, we can adopt the world's thinking. We can think like the world, and we need to be cautious and careful here. There are solutions that the world offers that don't fit with the hope of the gospel and don't fit with biblical truth. For instance, a highlight too, in the last few months, there's been a lot of talk about something called critical theory, or specifically critical race theory. It's a, it's a complex secular theory that, among other things, when it becomes a worldview, provides unhelpful diagnoses and unhelpful solutions. For instance, critical race theory labels people as either oppressors or oppressed. It suggests that racism is the evil underneath every issue in life. That suggests that redemption isn't possible without dismantling aspects of society or that all white people are inherently racist. It's an unhelpful perspective, and we should reject it. At the same time, there's a movement of what I would call secular social justice ideology that believes that society should be fair, but it works to accomplish that aim through arbitrary standards, and it puts its hope entirely in government intervention. And what it does is it focuses on the system at the neglect of the heart. And we should reject that as well. So I can give you other examples. Those would be the two most prevalent and dominant ones. And the point is, is that we have to be careful with both our behavior and our thinking. And this is where an incredible amount of wisdom is needed. Because on the one hand, you could go so far in caring for people that you would be guilty of embracing a social gospel where you take away the true gospel and you embrace a social gospel, and that would be wrong. But there's another ditch. The other ditch is to be so concerned about the social gospel that you actually create an uncaring gospel, a gospel that doesn't care for people, doesn't weep with them, doesn't enter into their pain. And biblical Christianity straddles both extremes and says, I will not embrace either a social gospel or a heartless gospel. I'm gonna find the Jesus gospel. And as a result, we have to be careful that we not have a lack of discernment on one hand or the other and be able to figure out how do we faithfully follow Jesus in the midst of a world that's broken with a solution that fits with the very heart of Christ. Now, regardless of which ditch you tend to gravitate toward, which is probably a good question for you to wrestle with, let me encourage you to find ways to care. But let me encourage you to do it carefully. About 20 years ago, the Lord did a pretty significant work in my heart on this very subject. It was easy for me to be a righteous insider in the church. My church had come from a more fundamentalist background, and man, when I talked about what's wrong with those people, my church, they, that would be red meat. They would love that. 
And as a result, it became easy for me to be more concerned about the inside of the church, not the outside. And I came to a season of brokenness to realize that part of my calling as a pastor was to preach the gospel such that people would then live out the gospel. We revamped our benevolence ministry. Instead of our previous posture being, hey, be careful, we're not taken advantage of, our posture was, how can we help as much as we can? When an over-the-road truck driver asked if he could park, a neighbor asked if he could park his truck in the back end of our parking lot over the weekend when he was home, my secretary actually came to me and she said, Pastor Mark, I, I think I know what the answer is. The neighbor has asked if he could park his truck in the back of our parking lot and, and I said, tell him yes. And she said, yes? And I said, yes, tell him yes. For too long I'd said no, fearful. He might take up too many spots and prevent church people from getting to church. <laughs> About that time, Sarah and I became foster parents in Allegan County. When I learned that the budget had been cut to the local foster care organization, the government agency, and that they had no resources to be able to give foster parents in an emergency situation when a kid was placed in their home, I thought, my church can do something about this. And so our little church began collecting in duffel bags, overnight bags for um, kids who were put into um, homes uh, in emergency settings, foster kids, and we collected 40, 50 bags and were able to help actually serve the needs that were in the middle of our community. My church continued to do that after I left and I learned that a year or so after I left, a social worker came to faith in Christ because she saw the love of the church expressed in the context of that little community. But what's more, what's more, one of the social workers told me that you've actually helped us to place kids more quickly. We were able to get them out of harm's way because foster parents were more inclined to say yes when there was a bag to help meet the needs. So the point is that when you think about how you individually and us collectively meet needs in the context of our spaces and our church and in our community, there are beautiful things that we can do together. This Christmas offering on December the 6th is a prime example of that. We want to love our city well. So I need to remind you that a veneer is not just a problem with furniture. It can become a problem with Christians. You need to ask yourself where and how that could look and then ask yourself what it would look like to be sure that that isn't the case. You, you shouldn't fight against veneer Christianity like I do. You figure out how to do you and do it well by God's grace. Consider when Jesus looks at the witness of your life and our collective lives together, what does he know? And what does he see? If you were to walk in the room today and hear our singing, would Jesus know that it's real? Or would he, oh, I pray not, say, stop. Do you know how many people you walked by this week? What a lack of concern you have for people who are right next door to you. You are so busy being righteous that you're actually unrighteous. Oh, I pray that isn't true. I don't think it is. But this text is a good reminder that it could be true. And may God help us to have it never be true. That veneer would characterize furniture, but not our religion. Pure and undefiled religion is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world.
Father in heaven, I pray that you would use this very penetrating text to help us to know what and how and where and when we could make this work. Lord, I thank you for a variety of gifts and passions that you have placed within the body of Christ. Thank you that it takes an army of people to meet so many needs in our spheres of influence, within our church, and within our society and culture. And Lord, we pray that the witness of our people collectively and as a church would be a light that says something special is here in the context of the gospel. So Lord, where this week we've been selfish or unkind or unthoughtful, we pray your forgiveness. And when you provide opportunities even this week to demonstrate the love of Jesus, help us to do it, not because we have to, but because we are so amazed with your love that we can't help ourselves. So God, grant us to have the same kind of heart that you would have, because you, by your spirit, have put it there and have made us a new people. We pray this in the name of our resurrected King Jesus and by his spirit. Amen.